You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Danny Petrasic and your host, and with me today is Dr. Fred Tenover. Dr. Tenover is the Associate Director for Laboratory Science at the Division of Healthcare and Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Tenover, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. And today we're going to be talking about something that's uh, in the general news all the time, which is the methicillin-resistant staph aureus infections that we see cropping up in many, many places around the country and getting a lot of attention. And so I thought we'd grab you and, and get your insights into what's going on here. Maybe you could give us a little bit of the history and the origins of this microbe and a little bit of its evolution. Sure. You know, this is an organism that was actually described back around 1890. So it's an organism that's been around for a long time, and it's remarkable how much we really don't know about this organism or we continue to discover about it. So Staphylococcus aureus really has a long history, but it wasn't until the very early 60s, only a year or so after the introduction of methicillin, that the first methicillin-resistant strain of Staph aureus was recovered in Europe. Almost simultaneously, around the world, we saw in Australia the emergence of methicillin-resistant strains. Interestingly enough, they were very different in that the European strains tended to be more healthcare-associated, where in Australia they were seen primarily as skin disease in the Aboriginal peoples. And it's only been within the last 15 or 20 years or so that they've moved into the healthcare regions in Australia and in the in southeastern Pacific, whereas just within the last 10 years or so, particularly in the United States, but also in Europe, we've seen MRSA move out of the hospitals and start to appear in the community settings. Sure, so that's, that's fascinating. So, yeah, as physicians, we're commonly introduced to MRSA infections in hospitals, you know, getting trained as residents and so forth. How is it that the Aborigines got it, and how do you get methicillin-resistant in that setting? Well, that's a good question. And interestingly enough, when you study genetically the evolution of MRSA, what you find is it looks like there's actually been the introduction of the methicillin-resistance genes into a susceptible strain or lineage of Staph aureus relatively few times, probably only between 15 and 20 times, has this large group of genes that we refer to as the methicillin-resistant group actually moved into a susceptible strain. So it's not like a plasmid that moves around in a gram-negative organism, not something that happens a lot. So this has been a relatively rare event. And we don't know exactly how it's come about, but we think probably that the methicillin resistance genes had their origins in coag negative staphylococci. So we've seen this evolution now, and particularly in the United States, in the community. These are strains that have very different biological properties than those that we're used to seeing in the hospital. So the hospital, we typically think of our multidrug resistant strain that's acquired either as a surgical site infection, sometimes as a ventilator-associated pneumonia, or more commonly associated with a catheter. In the community, they're uh, manifesting primarily as skin disease, and in fact, often very serious skin disease, more so than we're used to seeing in outpatient settings. That raises a very interesting question for me. But So first of all, am I correct in saying that the evolution of uh, MRSA in hospitals is a result of multiple antibiotic use, and sort of this is sort of the, the natural consequence of it? Um, 
it's probably been parallel tracks. There are probably the acquisition of certain strains of Staph aureus of virulence genes, colonization factors, and toxins that allow them to survive initially and to cause disease in a hospital. And then because of their exposure to multiple antimicrobial agents, they've become resistant over time. So just as we saw that in the community, those MRSA strains started out pretty much as resistant only to oxacillin and the first-generation cephalosporins, then they um, acquired the genes for macrolide resistance, and then gradually now we've seen them acquire resistance genes to tetracycline, even to mupirocin, and most recently to trimethoprim sulfa. Although the majority of our community strains still remain multiply susceptible as opposed to multiply resistant. Okay, so that's actually good news for the public. Very good news. So when we talk about the scare factor with these MRSAs that we've been hearing about, one of the things that comes to mind is the virulence factors. How serious are these diseases in the communities? I mean, in the hospitals, we rarely hear about people dying of MRSAs, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, the virulence is something that's still a bit of an enigma to us. We know that there's a toxin, the pantine-valentine leukocytin toxin, or, or PVL, that's certainly a marker of the community-associated strains. We know that it does have a role in skin disease. It apparently has a role, at least to some degree, in necrotizing pneumonia, but it also is not the virulence factor. It is not responsible for the serious disease that we often see as a sole source. There are probably multiple virulence factors, some of which have yet to be discovered, that really make the community MRSA, and particularly this strain we call USA 300, a very virulent pathogen. One of the most recent virulence factors that's been described has to do with a set of genes that allow the organism to survive intracellularly better. It's called the acme locus, or the arginine catabolic metabolic element. The important thing here is that this is a virulence factor that's moved into not every strain, but particularly these community strains, and moved in relatively recently, probably only within uh, the last several years. So Staph aureus is an organism that really, as a pathogen, is continuing to evolve. It's not a static disease. And as I mentioned before, the other thing that's important to understand about Staph aureus is that it's not just one strain. It's not a monolithic species. There probably are at least a dozen very unique lineages of Staph aureus, one of which causes toxic shock disease, which is very different from your classic nosocomial pathogen, which is very different genetically from your community-associated organism that's causing severe skin disease. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Danny Petrasic, and I'm speaking with Dr. Fred Tenover today, and we're discussing MRSA and uh, recent developments and a review of this pathogen. So, Dr. Tenover, let's talk for just a moment, if, if this is reasonable, about diagnostics. People are very, very concerned about these infections. Are there some simple ways that the primary care physicians can diagnose this? 
Well, there are, you know, and, and this is a fascinating issue because people often say, how could we have the spread of community MRSA across the United States so that it's one of the most predominant pathogens causing skin disease and abscess without us knowing it? And it's really because the standard of care in emergency departments has not been to do cultures on simple abscesses and things. And so I think what happened is we had the dissemination of these MRSA strains, but we didn't recognize it because we weren't doing cultures and weren't doing susceptibilities. And for good reason, it's because our standard therapies, often first-generation cephalosporins, worked very well. Well, you know, that era is coming to an end. And knowing the pathogen that you're dealing with and knowing its susceptibility pattern is becoming more and more important all the time, particularly as we see MRSA strains being more than 50% of the cause of drainable abscesses of people that present to emergency rooms. So typical cultures, I think, culture and susceptibility is important in these cases now. Now, in terms of studying the epidemiology, looking at nasal colonization is very much in the news and, in fact, in legislation in a number of states now. And we do have some PCR-based rapid diagnostics that allow you to detect nasal colonization with MRSA really in less than two hours from the time that a nasal swab is delivered to a microbiology laboratory. These tests are very sensitive and they are highly specific. Unfortunately, they're also much more expensive than our typical culture, but our culture-based methods really are 48-hour-based methods. And with the newer techniques, we can certainly have the answer the same day certainly within eight hours, and oftentimes even uh, within two or three. Yeah, and I imagine if the incidence continues to go up, the cost for PCR techniques should go down. Let me just ask you a quick question if you know the answer. Are there some good telltale clinical signs, even before we do a swab, that we could, you know, get our, you know, we're, we're more alert to that this could be an MRSA infection? No, you know, there's really nothing that I could point to that would say for sure looking at an abscess or sort of cellulitis that would tell me this is MRSA and not a susceptible Staph aureus strain. So anytime we're suspicious, a culture should be obtained. Yes. Yes. And in fact, you know, it's funny now among a lot of emergency room physicians, when somebody comes in and says something about a spider bite, spider bite now seems to equate pretty well with MRSA in in many people's minds. Interesting. So maybe we could just spend just a moment or two on therapy. So primary care physicians are all familiar with vancomycin and sort of been the mainstay in, in hospital infections and so forth. Maybe you could just give us a little glimpse of the current status and maybe something we could look to, you know, in the near future. Sure. You know, vancomycin remains a very good drug for treating MRSA, but like anything else, we have to monitor its effectiveness. We know that there now have been seven cases of vancomycin-resistant staph aureus that is fully resistant with very high MICs, often going over 1,000 micrograms per mil. Those are rare, but the low-level resistance or the so-called heterogeneously resistant vancomycin strains are something we worried about because we don't have a good test in the microbiology laboratory. So I would say that if uh, you have a patient with persistent MRSA bacteremia who's on vancomycin therapy and you know that the troughs are adequate and seven or eight days into therapy, the patient does not appear to be doing well, that's a time to reculture and look at those susceptibility test results and know that the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, which defines the breakpoints for antibiotics for the United States, has changed the vancomycin MIC of 4 micrograms per mil from its old 
susceptible category to intermediate. So we've lowered the breakpoints because we understand now that an MIC to vancomycin of 4 micrograms per mil probably will not respond clinically anymore. So that's a very important change for clinicians to be aware of. Linazolid is working very well. Daptomycin is a relatively new drug, very successful for uh, endocarditis and prolonged bacteremia. In the future, we see that there's some more glycopeptides that are coming down the road. Although the antibiotic pipeline is down to a dribble, the dribble we have has been looking very good for gram-positive, but not very good for gram-negative. So we will see a few new things coming for staphylococci in the future, and that's good news for us. That is a little reassuring. Those uh, glycopeptides, like the uh, televans and so forth, are they structurally related to uh, vancomycin and, or, or mechanistically related? They are all mechanistically related. Some of them actually are derivatives of tycoplanin, uh, which is another glycopeptide, as opposed to vancomycin. There's even some vancomycin-like molecules linked directly to a cephalosporin, so you actually have a bifunctional beta-lactam glycopeptide drug that's now in clinical studies. Dr. Tenover has been our guest, and we've been discussing methicillin-resistant staph aureus in its current status. I am Dr. Danny Petrasic, and you've been listening to Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thank you so much, Dr. Tenover. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.